0: I didn't introduce myself earlier. If we haven't met, my name's Tom, one of the ministers here. I'd love to meet you after church today. I want to tell you that you were made for greatness. Are the alarm bells ringing? Do you think you've maybe accidentally turned up at an inspirational TED talk instead of church? No, you heard me right. You were made for Greatness. Do you feel like you were made for greatness? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe Australian tall poppy syndrome is convincing you otherwise. Maybe your personality type is not one that wants to stick out and excel. But the Bible says that as a human, you were made for greatness. As an image bearer of God, the creator of the universe, your calling is to rule the world on his behalf just as the Governor-General's job is to represent the rule of King Charles over Australia, your job is to represent the rule of God the King over his whole creation. You were made for greatness. And so if you have a desire for greatness, then at its root, you're desiring a legitimate and good thing. But how do you achieve greatness? What is the path? To greatness. What's the strategy for becoming great? That is where things start to become much more muddy. That's where some very ugly and highly deadly options start to come into the picture. From very early on in the Bible, we see how actually all the problems of the world come from humans trying to grasp greatness in the wrong way. Now, as we picked up our reading in Mark's Gospel, we found Jesus on a journey. Jesus is on the road to greatness. The end point of this journey is Jesus reaching a level of greatness like no other, where all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. Geographically, his journey is from... Caesarea Philippi up in the north to Jerusalem in the south and he's travelling with his 12 disciples 12 men that he has handpicked to be with him, to learn from him so he can send them out to preach the message of God's kingdom as they travel he is teaching these disciples about this journey that he's on verse 31 he says to them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men they will kill him And after three days, he will rise. But the disciples, it says, did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. You've probably had one of those moments when there's something you don't understand but you're too scared to ask. Maybe you're in a classroom and you just assume that everyone else sitting there gets it. You're the only one, so you keep your mouth shut. Or maybe you really admire the person who's doing the teaching and you don't want them to think badly of you by revealing your ignorance. Or maybe the person doing the teaching gets angry easily and you're scared that they'll blow up at you for asking a dumb question. Or maybe you've been afraid to ask about something because you realise that you might not like the answer. I reckon that last one is what's going on here for the disciples. Because they heard Jesus' words... And whatever he was talking about, it didn't sound pleasant, did it? Part of them just didn't want to know. They were afraid it would be news they didn't want to hear. So they keep quiet. And the group arrives in the town of Capernaum, which has been a bit of a home base in the past. They're here for a stopover. They're staying in a house that probably belongs to Peter's family. And Jesus asks his disciples in verse 33, Hey... What were you arguing about on the road? As usual, when Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. And the disciples stay silent again. Previously, they were too scared to ask a question. Now they're too scared to give an answer because they know that Jesus won't like it. Verse 34 says, The disciples kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Now, to us grown-up Australians with our tall poppy syndrome and everything, this sounds faintly ridiculous. Who's the greatest? I'm greater than you. doesn't sound like what grown-ups talk about. But in the Greco-Roman world of the time and amongst Jewish religious people of the day, a status mentality was widespread. This whole episode makes me think of a car trip where you've got a parent in the front and kids in the back seat and Jesus is in the front teaching about how he is the Messiah is going to suffer and die. Meanwhile, the kids are in the back seat fighting about who's the greatest. It's just a bit, it's almost comical. And so when they stop for a break, Jesus decides it's time for a sit-down conversation about this topic. And that's what we have in the rest of today's chapter. Human beings are made for greatness. You are made for greatness. Each of those 12 disciples was made for greatness. But Jesus shows them how seeking greatness in the wrong way is deadly. They were involved in the worldly pursuit of greatness. And Jesus in this chapter has some strong warnings for them. And as we read this passage, it's worth asking ourselves, it's worth asking ourselves if we are at points caught up in the worldly pursuit of greatness, rather than pursuing the greatness of God's kingdom. Verse 35 is really the baseline of what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus tells them how true greatness works in God's kingdom. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And later in chapter 10, he expands on this with the verse that we looked at earlier. But in the rest of today's chapter, what he does is expose how doing it any other way will end badly. He exposes the deadly outcomes of a worldly pursuit of greatness. Here's the first of them. In the worldly pursuit of greatness, people who seem insignificant will get ignored and so the vulnerable will get damaged. If you're trying to grab greatness for yourself, then other people are simply tools. Some tools are useful, so you hold them close. But tools that are not useful, they need to be cast away so they don't weigh you down. In the social media world, trying to build your own image means you won't waste time offering an encouragement to someone who's not that attractive or not that successful or not that impressive. You don't want to be connected to that sort of people. You won't engage with their content. You might even delete those kinds of people from your friend list so they don't pollute it and distract from all the impressive people on the list. In Jesus' time, the people with the lowest social status were little kids. Back then, they had no legal rights. They had no social capital. They were the opposite of significant. They were easily overlooked by people concerned about greatness. But as he's teaching his 12 disciples, Jesus takes one of the kids from the household where they're staying. This kid was probably snotty-nosed, probably smelly. I mean, nappy technology was not very advanced in those days. Jesus grabs this kid, brings him into the center of the group of 12 men that he's teaching. He takes the child in his arms and says in verse 37, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Jesus is talking here about hospitality to the insignificant. Hospitality to those who will not bump up your image. Hospitality to the little ones. Now, in our society, it might not be kids, it might be some other group that illustrates this more strongly. Maybe it's those who don't speak English well. Maybe it's people with disabilities or chronic health trouble. People who have trouble holding down a job. If you're grasping for greatness in a worldly manner, you will cut yourself off from people like that. You'll spend all your time and energy and certainly all your hospitality on people who make you look good. People with connections. And in doing that, you will ignore and even oppress the vulnerable. And Jesus is not okay with that. Because Jesus identifies himself with the insignificant. Did you notice that? The way you treat little ones represents how you treat Jesus. And how you treat Jesus represents how you treat God himself. Jesus says, if you disrespect the little ones, you're giving the finger to God. This thread goes all through the Bible, that God has a particular care for and a particular affinity with the vulnerable and the downtrodden. We saw some of that in our first reading today, Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2. Hannah had been one of the downtrodden. In her context, being childless was a disaster. She was looked down on. But God intervened and raised her up. And so she praised him for me, the God, who raises up the vulnerable and brings down the proud. Further down in our Mark passage, Jesus has more to say about the little ones. Verse 42, have a look at verse 42. And there's a stark warning here. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Causing them to stumble here is referring to harming their faith so they stop trusting Jesus. And in the context of the chapter, the warning here is clearly to those involved in the worldly pursuit of greatness if you're pursuing greatness the world's way, you will ignore and therefore hurt the vulnerable and needy. Now he was talking to the 12 apostles who became senior leaders in the early church. So this applies particularly to people in Christian leadership positions. But we can all think about how this dynamic might play out in our lives in any area where we have influence. So let me ask you today... What kinds of people do you tend to ignore? In your interactions in the workplace or your place of study or the local social scene at the school gate or here at church. What kinds of people do you tend to ignore? Because out there in the world if someone gets ignored by a Christian it's not going to do anything good for their impression of Jesus. And within the church community, if somebody realises the people with power and influence around here don't pay any attention to people like me, then their spiritual walk is going to be seriously dented. Part of our church vision is to see all kinds of people encountering Jesus through the ministry of All Saints. Because Jesus strongly warns us against only paying attention to people like ourselves. So the first peril of the worldly pursuit of greatness is that the vulnerable get damaged. But there's a second peril in this chapter which is revealed for us by the disciple John. Have a look at verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Can you see the worldly pursuit of greatness here? John says this guy was not one of us. The more literal wording is he was not following us. Now this demon busting guy was doing his work in Jesus' name and the forces of evil were being pushed back. John doesn't say Jesus, this guy wasn't following you. He says he wasn't following us. His concern is this guy is outside the leadership command of the 12 apostles. He's a rogue operator. He's not following us. Here's something else in the background. In the passage we read last week, some of the 12 disciples had encountered a demon that they were unable to cast out. And I can't help wondering if that little episode is fueling their anxiety about someone else casting out demons without proper authorisation. These disciples are threatened by the success of others. In the worldly pursuit of greatness, they've been trying to create and enforce an inner circle. In order to preserve their own standing and greatness as the 12 leaders, they've been trying to shut down God's work when it happens outside their circle of influence. Jesus says that is completely wrong-headed. I have to say this is the part of the passage that really pricks my own heart. Because when I hear about kingdom progress that's being made outside my sphere of influence, perhaps by people who are good at things that I'm not good at, it's really easy for me to have a response of jealousy rather than joy. It's easy for me in my worldly desire for greatness to quietly wish that work would stop because it's a threat to me looking good and feeling significant. This dynamic can happen with individuals. It can also happen between local churches. It can also happen between denominations. Now, don't get me wrong, there are legitimate critiques to be made of the Catholic Church, of Pentecostal churches of Baptists, Presbyterians, just as there are valid critiques to be made of Sydney Anglicans and All Saints North Epic. I'm not saying there's no room for critique or concern about other groups, but I'm saying there's a need to watch ourselves carefully for criticism that's driven by resentment at kingdom work that's happening outside our circle of influence and control. Kingdom work that's happening where we don't have control and don't get the credit. That resentment comes from the worldly pursuit of greatness. And Jesus says it's deadly. Now, like the first point, this is particularly a challenge for people in Christian leadership. But we can all consider whether at times where we're wanting to create and enforce an inner circle. Whether it's in the life of the local church or more widely. The disciples were threatened by someone who was doing great things but didn't fit into their org chart. So let me ask you, who are you threatened by? Where in your life are there things that are happening that you're anxious about, not because they're bad things, but simply because they're happening outside your circle of influence? It happens to me, and it's a symptom of my worldly pursuit of greatness. Now, as we read this passage, you probably noticed that Jesus has some very confronting warnings near the end of the chapter. I don't know what buttons those verses pressed for you as we read them out. Jesus was a guy who was not afraid to talk about the reality of hell, the reality that at the last judgment, not everyone will enter the eternal life of God's kingdom. Some, he says, will be shut out. Jesus picks up from the prophet Isaiah this confronting imagery of people being eternally eaten by wounds, forever destroyed by fire. And he says that this outcome is worse than being drowned in the sea, worse than losing a hand, a foot or an eye. Jesus didn't hesitate to talk about the reality of hell. But here's something to notice. Jesus never talked about hell in order to scare little people into submission. Jesus talked about hell to warn powerful people to stop oppressing the vulnerable. But even so, when we read these confronting images from Jesus, it might have made you afraid. And you might be thinking, I'm guilty of the worldly pursuit of greatness and so Jesus says, hell is where I'm going, end of story, right? Well, when Jesus gives a strong warning, I don't want to be the one who waters it down. But what I do want to point out is that in the Bible there is always space for repentance and forgiveness. There's always space to turn away from our sins and have them washed away. And Jesus gives his warnings to his people in order that they will repent and be forgiven and enter life. On Judgment Day, none of us will survive based on our own track record. There's no one who'll come to Judgment Day and Jesus the judge will go, oh yes, you've never pursued worldly greatness, so in you come. Nobody. We can only survive and enter life because we belong to Jesus, who has the perfect track record. That's the only path to safety. And what Jesus is warning about in this chapter is things that are incompatible with following him, things that are inherently at odds with having him as our king. We're all made for greatness. And Jesus reached true greatness through the path of humble service. So if we're trying to become great by some other path, we are leaving the Jesus path behind. Jesus became great by lowering himself and lowering ourselves by entrusting ourselves to the suffering Messiah. Lowering ourselves is the only way we can be raised up In the end, to receive the glory and the honour and the greatness of being a citizen of God's kingdom when it comes. The warnings that Jesus gives are not so that we can decide if we measure up. The warnings are to show us the deadly paths that lead away from the safety of being with King Jesus. You were made for greatness. You were made for the true greatness of God's kingdom. And Jesus shows us the path to that greatness. He warns us about the paths that lead elsewhere. And so as we close, I do want to ask you those diagnostic questions from earlier. Who do you ignore? Who are you threatened by? But most of all, I want to ask you, can you see how the worldly pursuit of greatness will inevitably lead you away from Jesus. He is the only safe place because he is the servant king. So let's follow his path to greatness.